Good morning, everybody. Hey, yeah, church in the park wasn't that fun. It turned out, yeah, that turned out really good. We uh, Ron was counting. He guesstimates there were about 600. It was hard to count because you were all moving at the same time. So as as he trying, but he said, well, there's about 50 wide, and there's about that deep. Uh, it's about 600, and so that's as close as we could get it. Also, just another thing that often we forget about is our college students are on their way back, right? A number of them have already gone. Uh, a bunch more are going to launch in the next week or two, and some start earlier, some start later in September. So a reminder uh, to pray for them. And also, uh, if if you have relationships with them, you're friends with them, a, a note during the year, an email, something like that, just from home uh, is a big thing. So if you get prompted by the Lord to just say hi to somebody, remember to do that. Um, Speaking of don't don't do life alone. Uh, so as we we're so we're coming in the fall, right? Can you feel the press of that? I'm looking at Amy, right? Teaching, yeah, ramping it up right now. Here we go. And uh, so you know our routines, our schedules, all come. I'm looking at Kyle, right? <laughs> Just, a lot of teachers in the room. So Margie, yeah. So here we go. So uh, moms, you've got to get the schedules and kids and lunches and all that kind of stuff uh, back in place. We just want to put back before you and encourage you with community groups. We'll, we'll put a, we're going to put a push on this fall to be a part of a community group. To, don't just be out there or hanging alone. If you want to really know how to get connected at Northview, the way to do it is to participate in a community group. That's where you can actually talk with people. You can pray. You can hang out. You can go for coffee. You build friendships. And you've got a net. It provides the stickiness for us. Here at Northview, and so Lord, we're just asking that God would grow those, and uh, and our motto is don't do life alone. Uh, you're a sitting duck spiritually if you're out there by yourself. If you've got a posse, you can stay pretty healthy for a long time. So I want to encourage you to think about that and uh, do that. If you've got questions, uh, you can talk to John Templin. John, hand there's John, all right? John and Jan, and you can talk to me. You can you can talk if you know one of the community group leaders. You can talk to them. Uh, and do that, that, w- that would be great. Um, and if you'd like to start a group, just contact John or I and we'll help you get that off the ground and, and get it rolling together. And lastly, I want you to uh, be aware that we'll be doing communion together this morning, right? And uh, preparation for that, so prepare our hearts kind of stuff. I want to thank Rob for covering uh, last week. He did a fantastic job working with the passage and, uh, or I mean the Sunday before and really did a a great job with it. And if you like that, um, come back because you'll get to hear him again next week. All right. And the reason you'll get to hear him again next week. So, George, please come back. Right. That'd be good. Uh, George's dad. <laughs> uh, but the reason it's come back is it's North Shore's 50th anniversary. And Pam and I have been asked to come back and be there for the services and to celebrate 50 years together. And so it's their 50th. It's our 20th. All right, so there's some real significant uh, things in terms of anniversaries. And I also want to throw one more thing out. We're part of Converge Northwest. And uh, Steve Welling, our district executive, is going to step down. You've seen Steve before. He's spoken in the pulpit. But the person who's being presented uh, to replace him is Nate Hedinger. All right, and so Nate will end up being the district exec. And that means Cascade's going to go through a whole change, right, because They've got to find it. So if you think of Cascade, our lot, we have a lot of friends over there. Pray for them through this whole process. And uh, transition can be good, but it can also be, be rough. But going back to when Rob was speaking two weeks ago, 
He walked through the passage that Jesus said, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, right? You won't be worthy of me. And um, that, that passage is strategically placed there by Mark uh, for the Roman Christians. Why? What were the Roman Christians facing? They were facing persecution. It was getting really tough and they were realizing you either confess Christ and lost your life or you could duck out right, and try to find ways and renounce Christ. And, and so Mark put that in there uh, to show that Jesus understood what the cost would be and he wasn't asking anything of them that he wasn't willing to do himself. Which, by the way, I think is an awesome trait of Jesus. Why worship Jesus versus other gods? Jesus never asks anything from us he hasn't done himself first. And I, I think that's a leader that you can follow. So... Um, just as Jesus would carry his cross, so they'd have to carry their cross, and so too we have to carry ours. And then snuggled right between the message of the cross and the transfiguration, which is what we're going to cover this morning, uh, today is verse 1 of chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, open up, right, grab them. Let's look at this, and uh, there's some fun stuff here. In verse 9, Mark chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Jesus is talking and it says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let me read that again. Truly I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, the setting of this is Jesus is usually talking to big crowds, right? And in the big crowds, towards the front would be the disciples. So imagine if you're the disciples and you're sitting out there, and I'm not Jesus, but just pretend I am, right? And, and you're the inner circle, and then out is the larger crowd, and Jesus is speaking, and he's saying there's some here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come to power. What would you be thinking? I'll tell you what you'd be thinking. That's us. Oh, awesome. We're not going to suffer death. This is cool. Right? Uh, surely that's what they had to be thinking. It, it gives us a little more insight into when Salome, remember Salome, Mary's sister? She was mother to James and John. What did she do? She came up and said, Hey, uh, when this kingdom of power comes, would you give a seat to both of my sons, one on your right and one on my left? Right? You, you can see where that plays into it. And, um, it gives us further understanding why the disciples were arguing over who was the greatest. All right, the kingdom's coming. We're in. We're not going to die. The power's coming. All right, which, of us, which one of us is the, the big boss, right, on the thing? So you can see where that came from. In their minds, obviously, he, Jesus, was talking about them. It meant that they were not going to see death. We actually find an auto, autobiographical comment in the Gospel of John that takes this to the next step. Peter turned, in, in, we're looking here uh, in John 21. If you want to go there and look, it's not up on the screen. Uh, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it who's going to betray you? This was, of course, be John. Here's the rest of the passage. And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Which is kind of weird. Why did Peter use that language? Why didn't he say, hey, what about John? Right? They knew each other. They were close friends. They were cousins. You kind of figure out. 
But anyways, what about this man? More of a formal language. And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not yet to die. I'm sorry, this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is an amazing explanation given by John. So many scholars think John kind of wrote his gospel uh, to help curb the Peter worship that was beginning to develop in the church because Peter was held in really high esteem. So John kind of wrote some things, but John caught, found himself caught on the back end of another side of the comment where uh, worship was starting to be directed towards John because he was, hey, here's the guy who's not going to die till Jesus comes back. And so there was this adulation of John that John's trying to curb. And uh, John had to do a little what I'd call boot scoot and boogie here to knock people off his trail and get their eyes back on Jesus. Right? There's a lot of things like that in life, right? Where we put our hope in someone other than Jesus and, and we get really disappointed. Uh, and John is trying to shift the eyes back to eyes on Jesus becomes the central picture of our next verses. Uh, we're going to look at the transfiguration and they're absolutely invaluable in understanding the gospel and who Jesus is and who he claimed to be. So before we launch, let's pray. Father, we've covered a lot of information this morning. It would be really easy to be blanked out already uh, with just the stuff we covered. But as we come to the transfiguration, it's one of the real central points uh, that uh, are part of the Gospels that you did that was part of you representing yourself and who you were. And we pray this morning that you'd help me uh, clearly communicate and step into this uh, in a way that would be entertaining and intriguing and forming, but more than that, Lord, would cause us to worship. But let us know why we worship you and why we should be all in for you. And so I give that to you with great hope and ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So let's move forward. We're in Mark chapter 9 again. If you've got your Bibles, verse 2. It says this, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. So Peter, James, and John are the inner core three. So you have the 120 disciples, then you have the 70, then you have the 12, but the inner three are Peter, James, and John. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, just let's figure out where this is. Take a quick look here. So here's the map we've been using. You see the Lake of Galilee. Most of Jesus' ministry occurred on the west side of the lake that you can see up there, or up on the north, Bethesda, that area. Just north of this area is... So you see the Sea of Galilee there again? Just above there you can see this, um, Caesarea Philippi uh, up there in the, towards the right-hand corner. And just above Caesarea Philippi is Mount Hermon. All right? And so this is the area where uh, when uh, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? It was in Caesarea Philippi 
Why Caesarea Philippi? He was probably getting away from all the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The pressure's increasing. And so much of his training kind of took place in outlying areas that were either non-Jewish or more deserty so that people really wouldn't follow him there. And so Caesarea Philippi is, is one of those places. This is uh, an actual picture of Mount Hermon. It's uh, over 9,000 feet tall. It's a dominating uh, landscape. It's right on the Syrian border of Syria and Lebanon right there, northern Israel. And uh, there's a ton of history that goes with it. But one of the key features of this, where this mountain comes down and then it, it, Caesarea Philippi is right at the foot of it, is there is a, a, a shrine, a, an, an altar, um, whatever you want to call it, but it's called uh, the Gates of Hell. All right? This is an actual, you can go see it today. This is an actual picture. You can go there. Ben Russell was just there and he was telling me about it. Uh, this is the actual gates of hell. So when, when Jesus said to Peter, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it, they were standing right by the gates of hell. This is where the spirit worship of uh, entity or an idol called Pan took place. And what they... Uh, Mount Hermon is a great place of water and they felt like the gods went down into the earth in winter and then came out in spring. And this was the gate where those spirits came out of. And so there literally is a place that worships Pan that's called the Gates of Hell. And it's at the base of Mount Hermon by Caesarea Philippi. All right. So I want you to have that context as we're talking about this. Okay. So this is, uh, if I go back right here, this is where also when Jesus said, and who do you say I am? And this is where Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. All right? So the context is important. Uh, Matthew would record it this way. Uh, he, he says, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter spiritually discerned that. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So that's literally where they were, right there. There may be another reason uh, why the transfiguration was Mount Hermon. Uh, some scholars think it's Mount Tabor, which is another mountain, but uh, a number of them think it's this one. I think it's this one, and for this reason. In Genesis 6, if you go way back, all right, Genesis 6, we read the story about the sons of God looked down on the daughters of men and saw that they were beautiful, and it says they took them as wives. Uh, many scholars think that's the line of Seth and that they looked on uh, women who were not part of the line of Seth and took them as wives, and that's what came. But many other Bible scholars, and I would include myself in this, not as a Bible scholar, but as one who has this viewpoint, um, that uh, these sons of gods were angels that left their station in heaven and came down and took human wives. And out of that then in Genesis, you get the giants, you get all this evil, you get Noah and the flood uh, and all this, a bunch of stuff that we don't know all of it about. But they came down and the angels took human wives. And out of this union, uh, not only came giants, but came a lot of weird um, crossbreeding experiments and things that... 
uh, were kind of different. Uh, Pan, for example, I mentioned that name. You can look him up. He's a half man, half goat creature. All right. And so there's ties to all this kind of stuff. But to our point, why would the transfiguration happen on Mount Hermon? And I want to suggest this morning, what better place for Jesus to demonstrate his superiority, his supremacy and sovereignty and Shekinah glory than on the top of Mount Hermon? If this is where the angels came and landed on earth and created all that stuff that we now know caused the destruction of the planet with the flood, what better place for Jesus than to reestablish right there on Mount Hermon? So now, with that picture in place, is that helpful? That's some crazy stuff, isn't it? Now let's read those verses again. Add a little context to it with what we just said. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Notice the importance of Elijah and Moses. Elijah is considered the greatest prophet of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, If you read through, uh, he's held in very high esteem. And Moses is considered the greatest leader Israel ever had. He was the giver of the law. And so uh, nobody was greater than Moses, right? The Messiah would be one like Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. And it is to him that you shall listen. And Elijah would be the restorer of all things. Uh, We went through the book of Malachi a year ago. And in Malachi it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Uh, In NIV it says, with a curse. Now you can't get any more validation or certificate of authenticity than having Moses or Elijah validate who you are. Right? And that was the point of this. Jesus is literally transfigured before them on the top of Mount Hermon with Moses and Elijah being the representative witnesses. Uh, And this is not, as it's often presented, to help cement for Peter, James, and John that Jesus was the Christ, although it did do that. Right? See, like we think Marvel Comics now and we go, oh yeah, just, you know, Captain America and all that kind of stuff. And we, they, but No, they stole all that stuff from this picture. They got that idea from the Bible. This was something that they were like, what is going on here? We'll see that in just a second. But this was also a proclamation to the spirit world. Remember, where did this take place? On Mount Hermon, by the gates of hell where the religion of Pan started, where the angels came down, Jesus was transfigured on that very mount. And it was a declaration that here was the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, and that he, God, was stepping in and unfolding his plan that he had created, as the Bible says, from the foundations of the world. To save those who had been lied to and deceived and enslaved, Jesus was stepping in and declaring who he was to the spirit world. Of course, Peter gets the whole thing, right? 
Peter's right on cue here. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, he's just rattle-trapping. Okay? He is... He doesn't have a clue what he's actually saying. How do we know that? It's Because if you read, it says, For he did not know what to say. And for in Peter's case, something is better than nothing. Right? So he just rattled. For they were terrified. They had no idea what this was. They had no idea what this meant. They had no idea who they were dealing with. Suddenly the Jesus that they were walking around with was like this, uh, 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 uh. hey Lord, do you, you want us to make you some tents? Right? Can you just see how that worked? If that weren't enough, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. They're terrified. And if you think about it, you know, Peter tries to cover the fear by, you know, should we make tents? Do transfigured people need tents? Right? You just, you kind of catch that whole thing. But he just has no clue what to say. And if it wasn't enough, a voice from heaven, God the Father himself speaks. Very much like he did at Jesus' baptism. Remember in the beginning of Mark that God spoke that way, right? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Here he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Maybe Peter should have been listening, right? God is revealing the glory. What's going on here? God is revealing the glory that he and Jesus have had since the beginning of creation. Okay? Before the beginning of creation. This is who Jesus really is. This is what he looks like in human form. He's come down to accomplish a mission. But here's who he really is. And anytime you get that in Scripture, when God shows up the way he really is, when angels show up in the way they really are, for us here, we go, oh yeah, I could handle it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It says they fall down like dead men. Daniel, who was one of God's closest friends, passed out like a ghost. John, who was Jesus' best friend, fell dead on his face and had to be lifted up. It is an overwhelming experience, which explains why the disciples were so rattled. And here's one of the points. It's just really easy for us to get too comfortable with Jesus. Jesus, my buddy. Yeah, buddy, Jesus, yeah, I pray to you. And we kind of treat him like, you know, our good friend, our puppy dog, our, you know, when I need to call him, here, Jesus, come on. Right? And we forget he is the resurrected Christ. That this picture of him is who he really is. This is who hangs with him. This is what it looks like. And you don't mess around when that happens. It's an issue of honor. It's an issue of awe. It's an issue of worship. God was revealing the glory of who Jesus really was. And if Moses and Elijah weren't enough validation, the voice of the Father certainly was. Kind of Peter, stop talking. Shh. Listen. Right? Worship Peter. And just as fast as that, it was gone. And all that was left of Jesus. Can you imagine how off-balanced and emotionally tipped they were? Like, what, what just happened? What? John, what do you, I don't... I don't know. You ask him. You, oh, I'm not going to ask him. Are you kidding? He might light up again. 
You know, I'm not going to do that. How do we know it was like that? It says, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what is this rising from the dead? What, what does that mean? We don't get it. Now, why would that not make sense to them? Two reasons. One, they had the overall arching paradigm that the Messiah was the conquering Messiah and would restore Israel to prominence. And in the disciples' mind, they would be the 12 rulers with the Messiah. So they didn't have a picture of dying. And secondly, they just saw the transformed Christ. Well, what do you mean you're going to die? That, what? So it didn't stack up. It didn't resonate at all. And so they are really messed up. You can tell it really through them. They can't put the two ideas together. Uh, And they don't even really know how to ask the question that's really on their heart. So they circumvent it by asking another question, right? We do that all the time. I won't ask you the really question I want to ask you. I'll, I'll, I'll ask you another question, hoping I can get there in an indirect route. And that's, that's what they do right here. They're going to lead off with a question uh, that leads to the question they really want to ask. And in anticipation of that, uh, I'd like to ask the guys to uh, begin to distribute communion, if you would. That would be really helpful right now. The rest of you will keep on going in the passage. So they asked him, so here's the question that came up. They asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written? And this is a classic Jesus thing here. So he takes their question and flips it, right? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Notice how Jesus comes back right back around the barn and comes back to the same issue. Because he's been trying to tell them that he's going to suffer and die. They want to move away from it. It doesn't make any sense to them. Thank you, Ron. And so they ask a roundabout question, and Jesus takes a roundabout question, flips it, and comes right back to where he was talking about. How is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did, not, they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. So here, John, or Jesus is obviously referring to John the Baptist and John's ministry of declaring that Jesus was the Messiah. John was a frontrunner, a forerunner, a proclaimer, a herald uh, to announce Jesus' coming. And specifically here, when Jesus says, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He's pointing them back to the Old Testament scriptures. They know these scriptures. If if you've read through the Old Testament, you know these scriptures. Uh, Specifically, two that you could look up that I'm sure Jesus is referring to is one is Psalm 22, and the other one would be Isaiah 53, that refer to himself that say he would be suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So he's pointing them back to a picture that they don't really have a grasp grasp of. And so this morning, the question then is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? When we think of him, there's, in our world today, there's a lot of different explanations. Like, as we come for communion, uh, is he a good man? 
Well, yes, Jesus is a good man. Okay? Matter of fact, um, he, his life is the greatest life ever lived. But he's much more than that. Is he a great teacher? Yes, he's considered the greatest teacher who ever lived. But he's much more than that. Is he a prophet? Yeah, he was the greatest prophet who ever walked the face of the planet. But he's much more than that. Is he a priest? Yeah, he is. He's the holiest priest to ever fill that role. Matter of fact, his indestructible life, the priesthood no longer exists because he's the existing priest for all time now. But he's even more than that. Is he a king? Yes, and a great king. Listen to this description of Paul. Paul's trying to put human words to a description of this after Paul runs into this resurrected Christ. He is on the way to Damascus. He's persecuting the church. He's probably guilty of murdering Christians. He's guilty of throwing them in jail. He's guilty of beating them up. Uh, And he's on a vengeance to do this. And he runs into the resurrected Christ. And and some years later, Paul is trying to put human words to this. And this is out of the book of Colossians in chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, when you look at Jesus, you're looking in a mirror. You're looking at God himself. He is an image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him... This is Jesus. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When we ask the question, who is Jesus? This is who he is. He is God, and he's worthy of our worship. And I think about that as we're coming into the fall and we're coming to communion. There are so many things that try to steal our attention. What's the big one kicking off right now? Football, right? Compare the hours we watch football to the hours that we spend in the Word or praying. What do we really worship? Now that's just picking on the football people, all right? Does that mean you can't watch football? No, but it's talking about where... Do we keep our eyes on Jesus? How many things exist in our culture? Just the internet can be idolatry, right? If it steals our eyes away from Jesus, we are being robbed. We are being deceived. We are being captured. We are being lied to. And the goal, as I've mentioned, for the fall is we want to keep our eyes on Jesus. And this is what the transfiguration was meant to do. Keep your eyes on me. Don't just treat me like another person who is a friend of yours. I am God Almighty. And I need to be honored and worshipped like God Almighty. I need to be worshipped like the transcendent one. Worship means that we 
take Jesus, who he is, we take him, and he's held higher than anything else in our lives. And so when we come to communion, we come to honor. That one of the great things that's missing out of the church today is a sense of honor. Right? Giving honor to the Lord. Uh, we kind of casually stroll in and do our thing and here's your bow in Jesus, I hope you're healthy. And, and we're totally missing the point. It's a, We come to worship and we come to honor. And so we've tried to cultivate that here and I think we're gaining it. I think we're growing in it. I think we're all doing a good job. And that when we come to communion, when we take these elements... It's not just an old ceremony that doesn't mean nothing and I really don't like the cracker and I wish it was real wine instead of juice. All right? That's not what this is about. What this is about is do we recognize that the same Jesus who transfigured there on Mount Hermon is the same Jesus who sat at the Last Supper and said, let me give you a picture of who I am. Will you honor me? Will you worship me? Now the disciples, did they get it that night? No. Did they get it later though? Yes. They were a group of people who were able to keep their eyes on the resurrected Christ. We're going to have to do the same thing. Northview family. There's a lot of distractions. Jesus at the Last Supper used this picture. And it was designed to keep us focused. Focus on what? This is, a, this is an object lesson. This is a piece of bread. Jesus, It's matzah. It's broken, right? And... He said, this is a symbol of my body. This is what's going to happen to me in the next few hours. This is, I'm going to be broken for you. I'm going to be broken in front of you. And by that brokenness, I am going to pay the price tag for your sin. Jesus says, eat this in memory of me. What I like about Jesus, he also gives hope. He said, this is the cup. It's a symbol of my blood. He says, which will be shed for you, which is for the remission of sins. Doesn't that give hope? I don't know about you, but I'm like, really? Wow. Wow. Thank you, God, for the remissions of sin. And he also said, I will not drink this again. When? Till when? Till I come again. This is the hope of the gospel. That resurrected one, that transcendent one, is coming back. Keep our eyes on him. Jesus said, drink this in memory of me. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we'll close with a song of worship. But I'm like you. Fall's just really easy to get distracted. Summer's easy to get distracted because the schedule goes out the window. And you kind of lose, it's easy to lose quiet time and stuff. Fall is easy to get distracted because there's too much schedule. I don't know about you, but the schedule tends to drive us. We have a very busy life and it's easy to get locked into the drive and forget about the praise and the worship side. And so I just want to encourage us to go on. Keep, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. What's he saying to you? What's he talking to you? What are you getting out of the word? What's coming out in your conversation with friends? What are you learning about him? Is it fresh? Is it worship? Or is it routine? Right? Let's pray. Father, we always need a good brush up on this. And we always need to be reminded. We are very forgetful people. And we, like Peter, James, and John, can get 
we can miss what you're trying to tell us. We don't want to, but we have so many other things and we're trying to figure things out and then you throw something in and it doesn't seem to make sense and then we're trying to figure that out and instead of stopping and maybe like Peter, we should stop talking and just start to listen and let you as the resurrected one speak to us. You have many times and we're deeply grateful. Would you continue to do that? We need your help this year. We need your help going through the fall. And we want to be good sons and daughters. We want to be blessed servants. We want to have your hand on this church. And Lord, we ask that you would help us know how to be in right relationship with you and right relationship with each other as we go through the fall. We ask this in your name. Amen.